Testament this morning, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the Son of Man, that you care for Him, yet you have made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned Him with glory and honor. You have given Him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You be seated. Colorado is one of my favorite places in the world. There's various parts of Colorado that I like. In fact, in some ways, there's no part of Colorado I don't like. There's one particular corridor of Colorado that I have come to probably love the most, and the more I go there, the more... I love it. Uh, It's outside of Gunnison, so it's off the front range, a little uh, not as frequently traveled, really only one substantial ski resort to speak of in that area, which is Crested Butte, which is isolated in and of itself, and it's also this part of Colorado is called the Garden Spot of Colorado. As a result of not having uh, a plethora of ski resorts and not being on the front range, it's just less traveled. It's more remote. And in many ways, in my opinion, it's more beautiful. And specifically, if you follow the Gunnison River outside of Gunnison, headed to a small town named Lake City, Colorado, you will come across a piece of property which resides, where resides a camp called Sky Ranch. It's owned by a man that I've come to know personally who lives in Dallas that owns an untold number of acres along a remote highway between Gunnison and Lake City. We've done family camp out there, and then I've had the privilege of doing numerous silent retreats out there uh, with other folks. I got to do one in October to just traverse this land to walk along nearly a mile of private uh, frontage along the Lake Fork of the Gunnison River and to just wonder this property. There's so many aspects of it that I love it. There's hardly a time of day that I don't like it there But clearly one of my favorite times of day on this particular piece of property in Colorado is late at night or early in the morning before the sun rises, and it's for one reason, the stars. I love to see the stars unabated by light at a higher elevation in that crisp, clear, cool Colorado night. I did that multiple times just this past October. We all love the stars, right? There's just something awe-inspiring about them, particularly when they're shielded from light, particularly when the sky is clear. It seems they are layered upon layered upon layered on top of each other. We aren't the only ones that think this. Many people surely think this. We know for a fact that the famous artist, my favorite artist, Vincent Van Gogh, thought this. This was the inspiration of the piece that sits in MoMA right now, Starry Night. Unfortunately, because of Hallmark and reprints and all that painting, 
like many famous paintings, has been trivialized. But when Van Gogh painted it in 1889, he was compelled by the night sky. He was compelled by the stars. So much so that he wanted to take thick strokes of oil with his brush and layer them upon layers as he reflected upon the starry night. Van Gogh was quoted in saying that he finds the night and the stars much more alive and richly colored than the day, which sounds counterintuitive. He found the night much more alive and richly colored than the day. In a letter to his brother Theo upon painting Starry Night, he said, This morning I saw the countryside from my window a long time before sunrise with nothing but the morning star, which looked very big. And that was the inspiration for the painting. Why so much talk about night? Why so much talk about stars? Because scholars believe that David penned Psalm 8 at night. Verse 4 would be a specific reason that they think this. As he reflected upon the excellence and the majesty of God, he was provoked to do so almost assuredly at night. As he looked to the heavens, as he looked to the skies, as he looked to the scars, as he looked to the stars, he proclaimed this overall message that I want us to contemplate this morning. God is majestic. God is excellent. Other ways to say it would be God is transcendent. God is lofty. And I think it's important for us to hear that this morning while those terms and that description on one hand might seem or sound conventional, I think in many ways our lives testify to anything but that view of God. While it might be easy to affirm that God is majestic, God is excellent, God is transcendent, God is lofty, on paper, I wonder how much we affirm that in our inner thoughts, in our words, in our practices. Without question, our culture at large, including us, have overpersonalized God. I understand that it could be a reaction to historic deism. Which, which is what so many, as a side note, uh, embraced by the, founding, uh, by the fine, uh, founding fathers of our country. So many of them had an awareness of God, but most of them were deistic in that awareness of God, which was simply seeing God as someone who was out there, not so much as seeing God as someone who was personal. Not a real understanding for most of them of the gospel, or of Christ, but a belief, a deistic belief in that God does exist and that He is transcendent, but they did not really see Him as one who was personal and imminent. And I can't help but to wonder that that deism has really influenced the foundation of our, our whole worldview. And even today, in our day and age, how we tend to lean towards this deistic view of God. Either that, or maybe more appropriately, we've overreacted to that. We've overreacted to a lofty, transcendent, 
infinite view of God, and if it's possible, and I don't know this is possible or not, could it be, I'm just asking the question, have we over-personalized God? Have we made God so personal, so imminent, that we have actually started to make Him finite? And we have construed Him in such ways where we have decreased His majesty and His excellence and His enormity and His mystery. God has made Himself to be known truly, but not fully. And there's something beautiful about the mystery and the excellence and the majesty of God. And I'm afraid that we've lost it or that we're losing it. I'm afraid that we're losing it in our thoughts. I'm afraid that we're losing it in our words. I'm afraid that we're losing it in our actions. And I know throughout the West, as Christendom has fallen, I know that we are losing the transcendence and the excellence of God in worship. If you will, turn to the front of your bulletin. I've got a quote for us to look at together from beautiful Pulitzer Prize winning author who is also a Christian, Annie Dillard. She's considered a nature writer. And in her story, An Expedition to the Pole, she says this to further the point that I'm seeking to make. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are like children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. She's capturing, in a creative way, this transcendence, this excellence, this majesty of God, if we should say it, this impressiveness of God. Here would be a way that we could begin before we unpack this overall idea that God is excellent, that God is majestic. A simple question for us to reflect upon individually, truly, do you find God impressive? I mean, I really wonder, that would be a really hard question to answer out loud, by the way, I understand, especially for a Christian. I know not everybody here is a Christian. But I really wonder what the litmus test in our mind and heart is to the question, are we truly and deeply impressed by God? Do we see Him as lofty? Do we see Him as other? Do we see Him as majestic and excellent and transcendent? Do we see Him as big? Well, that would be a goal for us this morning. Maybe a simple goal would be that we could leave here this morning with a bigger view of God than when we came. Because ultimately, that's what we all want, right? Like, we all know that there's something bigger than ourselves, Christian and non-Christian alike. 
Everybody has this innate sense that we oftentimes try to ignore that there's something greater and bigger than us. And while it scares us on one hand, it attracts us on another hand. And I want us to be attracted to that reality more this morning from Psalm 8. And I want us to do so by reflecting on two simple points. I want us to look at the glory of the Creator, who is God. And I want us to look at the glory of His creation, specifically the glory of mankind. Let's delve in a little more deeply here to the glory of the Creator under the majestic excellence of God. We see this very specifically in verse 1 and in verse 10 as this psalm, which is a hymn, which is a song, which is poetry, forms what people would call an inclusio. It begins and ends the same. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. I love, as I have heard him recount on numerous occasions, Tim Keller, the now famous pastor in New York City from Redeemer Presbyterian, has frequently told about his own conversion as a college student being at a retreat, hearing a woman named Barbara Boyd speak about the majesty and the excellence of God. And Keller specifically recalls her giving this illustration, which ended up becoming influential in his conversion to Christianity. She told him and this group, and we hear this morning, this. And follow me here, and I'll pause for us to understand what's going on. If the distance between the earth and the sun, which is 92 million miles, all right, it's an objective fact, was measured by a sheet of computer paper. Just think about an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper. And the thickness of that paper, the thickness of that paper is the equivalent of the distance from the earth to the sun, 92 million miles. Imagine if the distance between the earth and the nearest star, which is 4.22 light years away, imagine the distance between the earth and the nearest star to be a stack of papers 70 feet high. So the distance between the earth and the sun is the equivalent of one sheet of paper, 92 million miles. The distance between the earth and the nearest star, 4.22 light years, is the equivalent of 70 sheets of paper stacked together. Furthermore, the diameter of just our little galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. And our galaxy is just a speck of dust that we can hardly even see in the whole universe. And God upholds these stacks of paper with a word. Keller goes on to say, if this is who God is, and you believe this is who God is, is this the kind of person you would treat as a personal assistant? Is this the type of person that you would say, you know what, don't call me, I'll call you. 
Is this the type of person that you would make demands like, I will follow you as long as you help me pursue my goals? I don't think so. Isaiah says this, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Not one of what is missing. Not one of the stars is missing. Not one of what stars. You know those stars... The ones that God knows each by name? You know those stars, just one of them, that canvases a distance between earth and itself? A stack of papers, 70 feet tall? You know that star? God knows its name. And every other star. The psalmist in 147 says, He counts the number of the stars. He gives them names, all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. It's why Charles Spurgeon would be provoked to say, There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is is drowned in its infinity. And look, here's what I'm saying to you this morning. While this is overwhelming, and while this can be mysterious, and while it can even lead us to some sense of confusion, I really believe that this is compelling. I believe that we want to worship a God that is excellent and majestic and transcendent. In fact, I believe that non-Christians are drawn to a God not that is overly personal, that can be easily described, that can be easily figured out. I think it's compelling even to a non-believer to consider and to contemplate a God who is transcendent and who is mysterious and who is excellent, and who is majestic, and who calls all of creation into being by His words. And I get that creation is debatable. I understand. Even Christians struggle with intelligent design. Even Christians struggle with God creating out of nothing. Even Christians are prone to be sympathetic scientifically to evolution. And now's not the time, and this is not the place, and this text is not seeking to build an apologetic for science and faith, but I would simply say there is one. Christianity has a lot to say about science. It has a lot to say about it intelligently, despite how unintelligent we as Christians are often in speaking about science. But the Bible boldly proclaims a glorious God who has created all things. And the simple question before we move on to the glory of His creation, I go back to is, are you impressed? Are we impressed? Is there not something peaceful and delightful 
and attractive in thinking about, you know what? I obsess about small things in my life constantly. I obsess about things like what my kids are going to wear and what sports team they're going to make. And I obsess about answering work emails. And I obsess about what a home is going to look like. And I obsess whether we ought to stay in our home or leave our home. Or I obsess about my diet. I obsess about my workout. And are we not just worn out with small things? I offer to us this morning an invitation to something bigger. His name is God. And He is excellent. And He is majestic. And He is glorious. And that majesty and excellence and glory has the power to take us out of our finite worlds that are so small and to take us into His world, which is vast. That's the glory of the Creator displayed in God Himself, which provokes within us respect and awe and delight. But then secondly, another way that we see the excellence in the majesty of God is in the glory of His creation, which we've already alluded to with regard to physical creation, things like the stars, things like the state of Colorado. But let's delve a little bit more deeply into this glory of His creation. And the first thing I want to say is it's a derivative glory. God Himself, He's cornered the market on glory. And glory, as we said last week, has this original understanding in the Hebrew of being weighty. Glory means to be heavy. Another way to say is glory is synonymous with significance. And God has cornered the market on that. But He's not selfish with it. He has shared it with His creation at large. The heavens display His glory. The seas display His glory. Drops of rain on a flower petal display His glory. But you know what displays His glory the most? You and me, men and women. Genesis speaks about mankind as the crown jewel of creation. That which manifests God's glory more than any other created thing. And so not only is Psalm 8 calling us to a higher view of God, Psalm 8 is also calling us to a higher view, are you ready? Of mankind. And we need it desperately. Now, those who are astute might be quick to say, no, 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 that's the problem. Men and women think too highly of themselves. It's called pride. Well, number one, Psalm 8 never mentions that. And we're committed to preaching the text that's before us. And then number two, I'm not sure that's actually true. I actually think in many ways, pride is driven actually by a low view of man and definitely by an inaccurate view of man. But Psalm 8 puts forth man having derivative glory from God himself as a beauty to behold. Eugene Peterson in his book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, says this, the Genesis story of creation begins with heaven and earth. But that turns out to be merely a warm-up exercise for the main event. The creation of human life. Man and woman designated, the only ones designated, 
with the image of God. If you want to look at creation full, creation at its highest, you must look at a person, a man, a woman, a child. The faddish preference of appreciating creation in a bouquet of flowers over a squalling baby for a day on the beach rather than rubbing shoulders with uncongenial neighbors in a cold church. Creation with the inconvenience of persons excised is understandable, but it is also decidedly not creation in the terms it has been revealed to us. Paraphrase, as beauty, as beautiful as the Rockies are in Colorado, creational order would tell us a packed subway car in New York is more beautiful. I know that seems appalling. But I'm telling you it's true with regard to creational order and the way God has sent His glory into the world. Nothing encompasses God's glory through the creational intent of mankind. We see this specifically in verses 4 through 6, and I'd like us to reflect on these here. And to do so, I want to read them again. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, all of which are amazing, which you have set in place, and it's like it's setting a stage here, and then the psalmist asks, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him. Yet, not only, as if he were to say, not only are you mindful, not only do you care, man is actually greater than the sun and the stars and the moon and the mountains. You have crowned him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over all these other creational things. Over hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beast of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So we're talking about our view of God. Something encouraging that Psalm 8 also does. It gives us God's view of us. And this is a generous, gospel-centered perspective. You know, it's always encouraging, especially if you're going through something difficult, or even if you're not, for a good friend to simply remind you that they're thinking about you, right? Whether it be through a text, through a phone call, maybe a face-to-face conversation. There used to be these things called pens and paper. There's this thing called the mail And you could just write somebody and say, I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. It's as if God's saying that. That's what he's saying in verse 4, that God is mindful of us. One commentator says this, Mindful has a compassionately purposeful ring, since God's remembering always implies his movement toward the object of his memory. And care simply implies his action as well as his concern. So not only is he mindful, the psalm tells us, but he cares for his people. So not only does he think about us as his people, he does something in thinking about us, and that something is caring for us. And then, 
as if that's not enough, that God is mindful and that God cares for his people. And once again, these are all attributes of why mankind is glorious. It's a derivative glory. We carry glory because we are made in God's image and God is mindful of us and he cares for us according to this psalm. But then furthermore, the psalm tells us about us, that God elevates us. So we can quit working so hard trying to elevate ourselves Just let go and realize God is elevating you already. He crowns us and then he gives us dominion. And this is a beautiful thing. And it warrants us checking our view first and foremost of ourselves, I would say. Our view of ourselves needs to be more in line with God's view of us. Mirrored in something like Psalm 139, when the psalmist says that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Just try that on for a minute. I don't know about you, but rarely when I look in the mirror, do I resonate with Psalm 139. But that's what God's telling us, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. So a more glorious view of mankind begins with ourselves, and ourselves need to be more synonymous and in line with God's view of us, which the prophet Zephaniah says, God is so favorable and delights in us so much that He sings over us. Now you might be quick to say, no, 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 what about My sin. We already did it earlier in the service, right? Like you believe in that. What about our brokenness? Well, this is where it would be good to capture this tension that Francis Schaeffer referred to as glorious ruins. Because of sin, because of brokenness, because we are not the way we're supposed to be living in the world that's not the way it's supposed to be, there is this tension that is encompassed, I think, very, very well in this concept of being glorious ruins. In fact, all of creation is a glorious ruin, mankind notwithstanding. However, that glorious ruin is in the midst of being reclaimed and being redeemed and being renewed. And the question is, do we see ourselves like this? Do we see ourselves accurately? Now, follow me. Some of you will get this more than others, but follow me. Do we see ourselves that we are not Utterly depraved. We are totally depraved. All of mankind, there's nothing about mankind at the end of the day with regard to goodness or righteousness that would merit God's favor with regard to eternal salvation. That's what total depravity is. You know what utter depravity is? Mankind is trash. Junk. Here's the problem. God doesn't make junk. And God doesn't junk what He made. And we've got to recapture this glory within ourselves and with others. Think about how this would drastically transform the way we do life. If we saw people for who they really are. How would it drastically transform our lives missionally? If we treated servers at restaurants 
like glorious human beings. And of course, you could come up with a myriad of other examples. Trimper Longman, an Old Testament scholar, says, we really have two options in life with our relating to other people. Glorify or degrade. Is our disposition in life towards other people, individually and then, gosh, corporately and communally as a church, are we a people that glorify or degrade others? What about people that have differing political views than you? Do you glorify them or do you degrade them? What about people that look differently than you, eat differently than you, smell differently than you, live differently than you? Glorify or degrade? I can tell you this, the church as a whole and this church specifically, if we don't capture the reality of Psalm 8 with regard to glorifying and not degrading, our missional impact will be nil. But Psalm 8 upholds not only the glory of God, but the glory of man as well. You know, we never know what's going on with people underneath the surface, do we? Ken Geyer, a great reflective author, writes about an interview in which he saw back, it's going to take you back a little bit, in the 90s, uh, a TV interview with Madonna. Some of you would maybe not even be able to know who Madonna is, I guess. She was a pipe icon and considered the queen. If Michael Jackson was the king of pop, Madonna is the queen of pop. She was a controversial figure in many ways, especially in her heyday. He writes, a pop icon, the bad girl of MTV. Everybody knows her. Sean Penn's ex-wife, Dennis Rodman's born-to-be wild girlfriend, David Letterman's foul-mouthed guest. Everyone knows she's the movie star, the author of that sex book, the one who talked her trainer into having a child with her. Everyone knows Madonna, or do we? He said, I thought I did until I saw a TV interview with her years ago. He said the interviewer was asking her stock questions, and then the interviewer asked this. You're a woman who has it all. You're a singer, actress, author. You've got money, fame, on a place in American pop culture. You've been on the cover of almost every magazine. You're not just a global figure. You're a global force. Is there anything you would give it all up for? You know what Madonna's answer was? To have a mother. She lost her mother at a very young age when she was a child. And I just wonder, while it might be dramatic, how indicative that story is of all people. Some of you would know the Avett brothers sing about it. In true sadness, nobody is all right. Everybody is hurting. And if we had our view of God transformed to see more of His transcendence and His excellence, and then as a result of that, the derivative glory that comes with mankind, how might that change the way we interact with people? And we need to change the way we interact with people. To paraphrase him in the weight of glory, C.S. Lewis simply says, there are no ordinary people. I know that you think there are now, he says, but every person will live eternally 
either in heaven or hell. And he said, if you saw each other right now in their glorified state, because there are no ordinary people, and if you saw them in their glorified state, if we saw each other in our glorified state, not only, once again paraphrasing, would you not be tempted to gossip about them? Not only would we not be tempted to think we're better than them, not only would we find these differences from them, C.S. Lewis said, if we saw each other in our glorified states, we would be tempted to worship each other. Because there are no ordinary people. God is a God that carries with Him glory. That glory has been transferred and distributed to us. Psalm 8 is a psalm that displays the excellence and the majesty and the glory of God. One that needs to be recaptured more fully. It's also one that displays the glory and the excellence and the potential, the redemptive potential of men and women. Once again, we can't help but to think that the psalmist here has in mind of the promised Messiah. Remember I said earlier this concept of glorious ruins. And while Psalm 8 speaks of the creational intent and an ideal that can be achieved by God's grace and power, it is an ideal that has been marred right now. We and others do sure not seem like we're a little lower than the heavenly beings right now. But you know who is? The Son of Man. In fact, He's above the heavenly beings. And He sits, speaking of dominion, at the right hand of God the Father right now. And He rules, and He reigns, and He's elevated, and He's crowned with glory and compassion. And you know what He's doing? He's restoring humanity to full glory in a way that's never been seen before. In a way that will mirror God's glory like it never has been done before. And he's called us to join that mission with him. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for this text. Once again, I personally thank you just for the creativity of this poetry, of this song. We collectively confess our view of you is too small and maybe over-personalized if there is such a thing. It's definitely skewed. And as a result of that, our view of each other and ourselves in this world is messed up too. So we pray for redemption. We pray that you would redeem our view of you and that you would redeem our view of others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.